Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believed, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Donald Robertson is a writer, cognitive behavioral therapist, and trainer. He is one of the founding members of the Modern Stoicism Nonprofit and founder and president of Plato's Academy Center Nonprofit in Athens, Greece. He specializes in teaching evidence-based psychological skills and is known as an expert on the relationship between modern evidence-based psychotherapy and classical Greek and Roman philosophy. His work is highly interdisciplinary, combining philosophy, history, psychology, and most importantly, real-world experience. I'm sure that you have at least heard or read some of his books. The most recent, Verissimus, I think was tremendous. His new, well, How to Think Like Roman Emperor, I think is the one that really got a lot of people's attention. And his newest book, Marcus Aurelius, The Stoic Emperor, is out now. So go out and order your copies of it. I've got my copy coming in route. I wanted to also give you a huge congratulations on this project that you you and your wife have been working on for nine months, and you got it on Thanksgiving. That project is called Hector Alexander Robertson. Congratulations on a baby boy. Well, thank you very much. We're very pleased. He's a very happy little boy, as we were discussing earlier. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to be a, be a father again for the second time. Mm-hmm. I, do, I really do look forward to thinking you know, as he grows up, uh, I get to, I'm going to be talking to him about Greek mythology and, you know, showing him some of these places like that we visit. Like I have a daughter and I've had many, many conversations with her over the years about philosophy and all kids, for some reason, love Diogenes the Cynic. Because <laughs> right? he's naughty, I think. Yeah, yeah. I have a, a, a friend who... Uh, works with young children as she teaches them. Um, she works for the US Navy and she's really, really, really into stoicism and has made all these amazing games that she plays with the kids based mm. on stoic philosophy. Wow. Uh, her name's Elizabeth and she's always sending me emails. She sent me one yesterday about the games that she was playing with the kids and all the kids' uh, questions about, and a lot of them are, you know. They like a bit of Diogenes, I think. And they like Socrates and Marcus Aurelius. But uh, they have a very different perspective from adults. Yeah, It's kind of refreshing as well. We're talking about making stoicism practical. My my first degree is in philosophy. I love, I love me a bit of, you know, obscure academic philosophy as much as the next guy. But uh, also as a psychotherapist, part of your job is to talk to ordinary people in language that they find relatable. So the job of every therapist is to, in a sense, translate technical research into layman's terms. And it could be a 15-year-old kid who's bunking off school 
um, and doing drugs or whatever, or it could be an elderly Jewish matriarch, or it could be a London cab driver, or, you know, like all human life is there. Um, so therapists are used to adapting uh, information to make it relevant to different people. And working with kids is a really good example of it. I think it helps you to understand the subject more deeply if you can explain it to a nine-year-old. Or even, I think my daughter started talking to me about philosophy when she was about four or five or something even. Just probably, I, I think I started talking to her about Greek mythology and then Aesop's fables and then kind of gradually kind of segueing into like very simple uh, stories about philosophers. Well, and you and I were also discussing this idea of be of Skinner and how it comes back to this idea of children's development and, and how they develop as they're younger. And you were just even discussing how, I mean, I'm 51, I'm not a young guy either. So growing up in that kind of environment where there was this very iron fist that kind of disciplined yeah. us, there were different effects and repercussions that were unexpected oftentimes. There was different times, Marcus, back in, in, the, in the olden days. Back, do you remember when everything was made of wood? Yeah, that's all. <laughs> everything was made of wood. Everything had a sharp point. If you were on a yeah. playground, like there was no, oh, you yeah. were falling directly onto the cement. Like it was, it was almost like natural selection. Every day you went for recess. I've got a photograph. Like I don't have that many old photographs anymore. I kind of lost them somewhere along the way. But I've got a photograph of me and my sister. I look like I'm six or seven. We're playing on a building site. Because my father worked on building sites and we were just going playing building site. Like seemed like a crazy thing that, to let your kid, but that was kind of normal. There were so many things we did as kids that were like crazy um dangerous and stuff. Like they're kind of inconceivable now. But the world has changed. We were talking earlier about how I one of my most vivid memories from childhood was when corporal punishment became was banned in the in the schools. And up until that point, that had been like the the norm for me. My like education, um, the way I was brought up, it kind of revolved around like this kind of severity and, and strictness. And I said earlier, I just felt that it made me more rebellious. It didn't really make me kind of angry as a young guy. And in some way, ironically, now one of the things that we find in ancient philosophy, a kind of trope, is this idea of reversal of fortune. Um, the, in the Greek tragedies, they love this idea that someone could be very fortunate. They, so Oedipus um, becomes a king, and then he realizes that he's uh, murdered his own father. He slept with it. It turns into a tragedy and slept with his mother. And you know, you find this uh, misfortune turns out to be good fortune, and vice versa. And I think. That become there are many benefits. I don't. I I don't think that wisdom comes with age per se. However, I think as you get older, you have an opportunity to look back on. You have more experience, and you have an opportunity. So it's almost like you. There are two options. Either you're the kind of person that looks back on your life and asks yourself some questions about what you've learned along the way, or maybe you don't. You know, but the opportunity is there. You, you've got this thing. The most valuable thing in the world is this personal experience that you have. And there are kind of almost meta lessons. There are very general, abstract, there's specific things we learn. But I think one of the meta lessons, one of the most abstract lessons 
we learned generally looking back in our lives is that things that seemed like setbacks in retrospect in the long term may actually have worked out in our favor and things that seemed like a great opportunity maybe were like the worst decisions we ever made so the classic example would be the guy that gets promoted at work and it's the the most amazing thing oh i've got this job that you know i've been desperate to get it's like a really big deal um and then maybe it's really stressful and he's working all the time and that ruins his family life and it ends up leading to a divorce and you know like so sometimes you know gotta be careful what you wish for and equally, someone might lose their job and get made redundant, and it seems like a big catastrophe at the time. And then in retrospect, they think, that was really bad for a while, but then that gave me the opportunity to go and start my own business or mm-hmm. to go and retrain and do something else. And that completely changed the course of my life. And you know that it turned out to be the, the best thing that ever happened to me in, in retrospect. I said that because when I was a kid, because of the way that we were disciplined at school, I guess, and at home to some extent, I vividly remember being really angry all the time. You know, we'd get uh, the toss or like we'd get strapped with a leather strap in front of the class at school. And I would just sit there fuming, like really bitter and really angry with the teachers for this kind of punishment. And, you know, the strange thing was in some ways, I think that helped me. Um, in a roundabout way, because I was so angry as a young guy that I dealing with my anger became a kind of project for me. And then uh, I, I, I think I did, like, you know, definitely. By the time I was in my mid-20s or late-20s, I just I remember kind of almost just waking up and thinking, noticing I'm not angry anymore. Like, I used to be angry all the time. And now it's kind of, it's just gone, you know? Uh, It's like you've got a rash or something that you've got for a long, long time. And then one day it just kind of clears up. And I I guess I just persuaded myself on many levels through reading Stoicism and and other ancient philosophy and through training as a therapist and doing therapy. And also one thing you realize when you look back on your life is that the best wisdom and the best advice is often seems kind of banal. Like, and then you, that's part of the problem in life. If, if you're then to sit someone else down and say, here, I could tell you lots of really technical and interesting, obscure things about the psychology of anger. But honestly, the thing that helped me most was at some point I just realized it's not worth it. And that sunk in. Like, and I started to just really viscerally feel it's not worth getting angry about this point. It just seems silly and kind of pointless. And and self defeating, like and that everyone knows that, right? Everyone knows that already. But at some point, it's sunk into my thick skull, and then you know a lot of the anger. I still get angry sometimes, but definitely, I I was aware that I was I had a lot of anger, and then it it, it went. And then the the reason that I think that in a sense became a positive thing is it probably helped me a lot in my career as a therapist. Because I could see beyond the red mist. Yes. Like I'd seen both sides of it. I thought I've been in it. And I also know what it's like when it evaporates. That's huge. And as you said, wisdom doesn't come from age. It comes from repetition. It comes from understanding, like you said, knowing this lesson. Or how many times have we heard people say, yeah, I've heard that before. But then the way that you say it or the angle or the way that you present it with this 
indirect approach saying, listen, I just realized that it wasn't worth it. It was using a lot of my energy. I couldn't focus on anything else. I can either be angry or have the rest of my life. Some For some people, that alone is enough to really be enlightening. And now they take it to heart as opposed to us preaching to them or giving them a bunch of quotes about what these other people did. It's like, well, that's fine, but that doesn't help me right now. Well, again, as, as time goes on, again, this, I, for want of a better word, another of these kind of meta lessons, I think, and I, I think everybody knows this at some level. I now see life as, to a large extent, as though we're born in a trance. And we come into the world as babies. We have instincts and reflexes, but we've got no real idea what on earth is going on around us when it comes to people in society. We gradually get socialized and we learn the language. And we, how do we get our values? Will we look around us and we copy what other people are doing? You know, we go, gee, I guess money must be really important. Like everyone else seems really concerned with it. I guess it must be really important to be like a celebrity. It's no <laughs> surprise that kids all want to be YouTube influencers now, right? Of course. What else? What other conclusion would you draw if you were born and suddenly thrown into this world and, and took a, a look around you? You think everyone seems to be obsessed with celebrity. Like, I guess it must be important. And so we're indoctrinated from, you know, from early childhood to the prevailing values of our society, which nobody actually endorses weirdly. Like none of us really believe that celebrity and wealth are the be all and end all of life. So we have this set of values that everybody really kind of agrees are superficial and wrong. And yet, generation after generation, we indoctrinate our kids unintentionally into the same bunch of stupid, superficial, like materialistic, hedonistic, narcissistic um, values that happened in ancient Greece and Rome. It still goes on today. And it's no surprise. Um, we sleepwalk into the same thing over and over again until something happens that shakes it out of us. Like we get a shock and it snaps us out of us. And for some people, that's a brush with death. Mm-hmm. There'll be some people who nearly die. And then they are, you know, the weird thing about that is some people have a brush of death and it has no effect on them or it makes them worse. Some people might get a fright and it, it's not real. Like they, it's a false alarm. Maybe they think they're having a heart attack, right? Turns out they're absolutely fine. It's indigestion or something, right? But it, it never, it does matter. Like, it might for 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 like ten minutes, you know, for half an hour or whatever. Maybe they really believed that's it. My, my time's up. I'm dying. And in that moment, maybe they suddenly thought, maybe like all those hours that I spent making widgets in the office wasn't really time well spent, or you know, maybe all that time that I spent watching episodes of Friends was like, you know, not really not really a good investment of of, of time. It makes you reevaluate your priorities. When you have a brush with death. And now the other thing that can do that is bereavement. Like if you lose someone else that you care about, it can make you, you know, reevaluate, you know, is, is this. So you, my father passed away when I was about 13, and I think it had that effect on me. Um, because I felt looking at my father that he, I was watching a man looking back on his life with regret that he, I saw in his eyes it seemed to me that this was a guy that was tortured a bit 
by feeling that he hadn't really done the right things with his life. And that that had a big impact on me as a kid. It made me think, I don't want that to happen to me. But, you know, I, I was scared of it. And I thought, um, I, need, I need to figure out what it is that makes life worth doing. Um, and so I, I, pretty early on, that propelled me into studying religion and philosophy and got me into classics really when I was about 15 or 16 or, or something like that. And that was what, the reason I ended up as a young guy going to university and studying philosophy. I do think one of the big things is the shock. Or it could be other types of shock, but bereavement, brush with your own mortality, they can snap us out of the trance that society puts us in that makes us behave as if we think wealth and status are somehow the most important things in life. The main lesson that we get from Socrates, which really is the basis of Stoicism, is the wisdom are clearly of more intrinsic value than wealth uh, and status. You know, and the arguments for that are commonplace in ancient philosophy. There are multiple arguments for it, but they, they're relatively simple. I give you, and in fact, I'll repeat one of them right now, because like, it's so simple. Brilliant. In the Euthydemus, Socrates is talking to some young guys, and he says, how would you define good fortune? And, and Socrates usually starts off with what seems like a banal question, in a way. For all that the internet's awash with self-help advice, I mean, when I talk to people that are like self-help junkies and self-improvement junkies, uh, often I'll say to them, how would you define wisdom? Or, you know, how would you define fulfillment? And, and often they've never really thought about it. And it strikes me that those are maybe the first questions you would want to answer before you go and read a lot of self-help books and do workshops and things like that. Let me figure out what your fundamental goal actually is. Maybe Otherwise, maybe you're doing the wrong type of self-help. In order to do self-improvement, you need to have some kind of idea of what it, in what direction you're attempting to improve yourself. Because there's a lot of self-improvement stuff now, as in the ancient world, that's about becoming successful. And while well, always picking the same dude, like you know, for a good example would be like, do you have lots of Bugatti sports cars, right? For instance, no, not naming anyone in particular. But is this an idea of like, so if this is an image of self improvement, it couldn't be more at odds with ancient philosophy. So Socrates thinks there's a big risk in undertaking self improvement if you're heading towards completely the wrong destination. But like you have to stop and ask yourself. Like on your deathbed, are you going to care how many Bugattis you've got, or like how many women you slept with, or or maybe even how much money you know you've got? You know, maybe there's other things that are you yourself believe are, are more intrinsically valuable. Socrates says to these young men, "How would you define good fortune?" And they said, "Well, having a lot of money, having good looks, having uh, good health." having status in society. And they say, it's all obvious stuff, right? Uh, having a nice house. You know, they would have said having a fleet of sports cars, like, you know, if they live today. All the kind of cliche stuff that they said, this is an easy question to answer. And Socrates says, yeah, you're right. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Um, to cut a long story short, 
But then he says, but let's take one of those in turn. And actually, as an aside, in order to follow the thread of this argument, it usually is easier to begin with wealth. Uh, for some reason, it just is. And and he realises that. So he, he starts off with wealth. And he says, well, suppose you've got a big pile of money, like wheelbarrows like, full of gold. Um, that seems like it would be a good thing, right? If you were wise and virtuous, you could use that big pile of money to do wise and virtuous stuff. Like, see, so it seems like big pile of money is a good thing. And his, uh, his friend's like, yeah, like, obviously. And by this time, they're starting the G-Socrates. You, like, you know, you go on and on with these arguments. And they never seem to be leading anywhere. You know, this, you're, you know, you're kind of like a silly old man. Like, it seems like obvious stuff, right? And Socrates says then, but what would happen if you took that pile of money and gave it to somebody who was foolish and vicious? Like, wouldn't it just allow them to do more foolish and vicious stuff? Like, what if you gave it to an evil dictator or a serial killer? Like, I mean, don't you think it'd be better off if they didn't have that money? So it would just allow them to do more horrible stuff, right? Is it not maybe the case that the money itself is neither good nor bad, but merely gives you more opportunity to extend control over your environment? And whether that's good or bad would depend on the way that you use it. And the way that you use it would depend on your character. Like whether you're a good person or a bad person, a wise person or a foolish person. And so through this argument, they they agree with him. They go, okay, then I guess these are external advantages. And it would be more accurate to say that moral wisdom and virtue are, are good. And then Socrates says, this applies to everything else that you listed, like status, having property, like, you know, being famous. Well, that seems like it would be an intrinsically good thing to many people it's like an end in itself but what if you're famous and you're an evil dictator or you know you're famous and you're just an idiot and you uses his fame to influence loads of people in a, a really unhealthy direction you know it's not a bad thing like it wouldn't be better if you didn't have that fame so maybe even fame just is an opportunity to exert control over a wider range of people and whether it's good or bad is going to depend on your character. So through this argument, it leads him to, and his friends, to the conclusion that moral wisdom is the only intrinsically good thing and that everything else that people normally think of as a, a goal in life is really only a, a kind of secondary uh, value. It's a, a, at most an external advantage. But even more paradoxically, Socrates says, but a wise and virtuous person would be able to make good use even of the uh, the opposite of these things. So if somebody had real wisdom, even sickness, they'd be able to learn from uh, and turn to their advantage. They'd, uh, the wise man uses his sickness or disability wisely. You know, he uses his poverty wisely and learns from it and benefits from it. You know, everything becomes kind of grist to the mill. So not only are these things of no intrinsic value, but even the opposite of them or the, or the absence of them could be turned to good by somebody who has wisdom and moral virtue. But no matter how much fame and money you give to somebody who's an idiot uh, or foolish and vicious, it, it's not necessarily going to help them. And in fact, it might make them much worse. It's like the idea of somebody who wins the lottery and, and becomes a millionaire overnight and they have more money, more problems, like maybe they blow it all on up their nose 
or you know on, on hookers and blow and you know suddenly they're surrounded by like hangers on mm-hmm. you know and there are many lottery winners that say it was the worst thing that ever happened to them it ruined their life you know they can't trust anyone anymore it got them into a lot of problems so sometimes giving people these external goods which be careful what you wish for could actually be a, a bad thing what the real key is whether we have the wisdom to use these things or even the contrary in a healthy way. Well, and I love that you come back to that notion of when I talk about adversity being a gift, again, it it helps us strip away these artificial metrics, this, these superfluous things that are not really of any value. When I was paralyzed, like the, the kind of car I drove, the house I lived in and the clothes I wore didn't mean anything to me. And I would have yeah. given all that away just to have my health, my ability to walk again. So again, having four months to have no other choice but to meditate on that, literally, when I got the second chance, it was like, and I looked at all the stuff that I had taken for granted. I thought that reading about Marcus, like reading meditations, I thought that was enough. I thought that being able to quote what he said was enough. It's like, no, that's why I love your work because you're talking about, you get more out of actually reading what Marcus said or what Epictetus said from them directly. And then putting it through the filter of who you are in real life, as opposed to just kind of regurgitating quotes and trying to impress people when patting yourself on the back for sounding intelligent. I think that, like, again, if you look back on the course of your life, you know, often the, the deepest learning you get, the best type of learning is when you figure out something for yourself from your experience, and then you open up Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius or whatever, and they agree with you. You know, and you get this kind of validation from it. But it doesn't work so well the other way around. You know, like when you don't learn from your experience and then you read Marx Realist Repetitus and you're just kind of like parroting what they say. I think the the most useful experience is when you figure it out yourself and what you get, what you find in those books is somebody who and the val the re- some people say, Why should you care about ancient philosophy? Like it's really old. And actually I think there is some intrinsic advantage to something being really old and from another culture like that in the sense that what we were sometimes looking for i think of this if you figure out something for yourself it's human nature to want to share that with other people if you think this is awesome i've figured out you know the secret of life you're going to kind of want to shout it from the rooftops and tell or at least tell other people or at least tell your kids about it right um, but in order to communicate it with other to other people, it helps if you feel that this it's not just me, is it? You know, it's not just personal to you, but there's something universal about it. Now, there is the benefit of reading the same thing in someone else's book, particularly if it's someone that lived two thousand years ago. That does make a difference because you think even guys that lived in the Roman Empire arrived at the same conclusion. Even people, Socrates in the Peloponnesian War, arrived at the same conclusion. So maybe there is something kind of universal. Maybe it's a human given or, a you know, there's something, uh, some kind of perennial wisdom here. And the benefit of that is I think it gives you some validation and some encouragement when it comes to communicating or sharing your experience with other people. Definitely. And, I, you know, I I... We talked earlier about, I believe that uh, there are many useful practical pieces of advice in Stoicism, but the most useful aspects of it, I think, are so fundamental that people often overlook them. 
I don't know. When I was a kid, I was kind of briefly into martial arts. And, you know, when it, it reminds me of when you would see sometimes the older martial artists, the guys that are old Japanese karate masters and stuff like that, you know, and you'd, I'd be reading their books and stuff. I read uh, Karate Do Kyohan by Gishin Funakoshi. It was one of my favorite. Yes. Uh, yeah, right? Yes, I love that. I started doing martial arts when I was 12. I, I love that book. And uh, Daoji Kondo, someone gave me a copy of mm-hmm. it, Bruce. That's a different sort of book, but yeah. also very interesting. And and you, you're opening it up and thinking, are they going to tell me how to do a flying spinning back kick properly in here or something like that, right? And, and then they'd say things like, it's all about your breathing. Or it's all about your stance. And you'd be like, what? Come on, granddad. Right? <laughs> that's like, it's all about your stance. Like, that's boring. Right? right? But I think the more experience you have in something, often you come back to these foundational aspects. And I think that's probably why it's hard to pass wisdom on to other generations because it, it kind of starts, sounds like you're talking in platitudes or truisms or it gets a little bit banal. You think, but I want to know how to do you know, some a flying spinning back at like or something like I don't want you, I don't want you to tell me how to breathe like when I'm in it. But you seem to think that's the most important part of you know, or something even weird like you you're, now you're telling me it's it's all about your mental attitude or something like that. Um, with stoicism as well, like I, with the first book I wrote on it, I listed all the psychological techniques I could find, and there were eighteen. Like you know, and you could. Divide them up differently. I mean, in a sense, there are many, many more than that. But I, I, I found about 18 fairly common techniques. One thing that strikes me is that most of the, I do think it's a bad thing that most of the modern, there are many, many, many books on stoicism now and many articles on it. And I am, I don't know if I'd say it's, I, I, maybe I, I'll rephrase that. I'm just kind of surprised and maybe a little bit disappointed in a sense that most of them never mention any of the practical techniques. I Because people always go on about how practical they want it to be, and yet nobody ever talks about the actual practices, exactly. really, or very seldom. And I started off by categorizing them and listing them and comparing them to techniques in modern psychology. So on the one hand, there's a part of me that thinks we should be talking more about this kind of, you know, like different punches and different kicks in a martial mm-hmm. art. Like, here's the 18 different ways that you can kick or punch or block or whatever, right? But also there's another part of me that wants to keep coming back to maybe there's something even more fundamental and yes. familiar, but then maybe that's going to sound like a boring old man say, go talk saying, you know, it's all about your breathing. Uh, it doesn't matter how you, you know, it's just about this other <laughs> stuff. You know, so we've got the things like the view from above and contemplation and the reverse clause, the reserve clause and uh, premeditation malorum and like, Many, many specific strategies that are used in Stoicism. But I think the Stoics themselves would have said the core of it is this actually something that I would perhaps give a technical name to. Um, in Hierocles, who is one of the most more obscure Stoic authors, uh, he, we have large fragments from his book, um, What's it called? The element of ethics or something. Elements of ethics, I believe it's called. I can't remember now. But um, it's not the most interesting. You're not missing out on that much necessarily because it's, you know, sometimes we think there's only about less than 1% of historic literature that survives, right? And people go, wouldn't it be awesome if, like, we could unravel those 
scrolls that were found in Herculaneum and like they find all these ancient and and I think yeah but what if, what if the other ninety nine percent of it was kind of boring you know what if it, what if the bits that we survived are the best the creme de la creme right of, of Stoicism it was probably curated for us by history and honestly a lot of the the books there's some indication that a lot of the stuff that we don't have was pretty dry right like so Hierocles is is not that famous because it's you know, if you're a nerd about these things, it's like I am, it's kind of cool, but I wouldn't recommend it reading to the majority of people. It's, little, it's not like Seneca or Marcus Aurelius. But at one point, he does say something interesting, which I don't think we find in Epictetus or Marcus, which is he says that Stoic ethics, he, he describes it as epistrophe, which is the Greek word for conversion, like a religious conversion. But it's an interesting word because even the Latin conversio and the Greek epistrophe literally mean turning around, like doing a U-turn. So I, I that struck me as a very interesting word to describe the experience of studying Stoic ethics. It's like doing a fundamental U-turn in terms, it's like turning... Uh, and it, we can see this being echoed the, the, in other areas. The Stoics and the Cynics, we're told the Cynics used to practice walking backwards and that they also had another technique where people were all coming out of the theatre. So there's crowds and crowds of people. The Cynics would walk in the opposite direction. And it was partly just a shame-attacking exercise, but also it was deeply symbolic because they were trying to desensitise themselves to the experience of like literally walking against the flow of the prevailing values of their society of, you know, not, I don't care if everyone else is walking that way. I'm going this way, you know, even if I have to push my way like through the crowd or whatever. And it's a, it's a metaphor for reappraising your values and doing a, a, a fundamental U-turn and turning your, you know, your values on their, on their head and thinking, geez, I spent all my life trying to make money and, you know, be successful like, in uh, whatever I was doing. And, you know, like maybe I, I, that was, I missed the point. You know, I wasn't really thinking about whether I was being successful in terms of my character and the type of person that I was. I was just, you know, I was playing the game. I was in the rat race. I got lost in the rat race. I was playing a game, you know, like everybody is lost in the rat race to some extent until until they're not, until they, they snap out of it. Um, and the Stoics really think, you know, we are like sleepwalkers. We're like people walking through a dream until something like Stoicism or a brush with death shocks us. And then we have this aha moment or a kind of Sartori experience or what Hierocles calls... Uh, an epistrophe, a turnaround like, in our life that makes us realise I had everything back to front this whole time. Like I was looking at the world upside down. Yeah, it changes everything. And then it really changes. Right? Who cares about, you know, contemplating the sage or the view from above or premeditation below or the reserve clause or whatever. Those are all kind of like secondary but the, the real key of it, the core of all, and if you don't have that realisation, then all those techniques potentially might help you, but they might also just 
can keep you moving in the wrong direction. I've seen people like talk about you you'll see on the internet actually it's become more common now that people say learn how the ancient stoics could teach you to become more successful as a, a internet entrepreneur or, or or how to get girls with stoicism <laughs> and things like that like and you think wow that is so not something that epictetus would ever say or marcus aurelius not that there's anything wrong with being a successful entrepreneur or getting girls but it kind of just seems like you're focusing on the wrong things it's not necessarily going to make you happy there's something like you're missing the first step which is to figure out what sort of dude you'd have to be in the first place in order to benefit from you know having these advantages in life i mean they might do you harm if you're the wrong type of dude right like and stoicism doesn't want to get you external advantages that might mess you up because you're not ready to handle them wisely you know, it wants to get you the, the more fundamental wisdom. Um, but so people really have appropriated stoicism increasingly and yes. kind of co-opted it to these consumerist, narcissistic, hedonistic, egotistical, materialistic kind of pseudo-values. Like, uh, I mean, that happened in the ancient world, the sophists, and other ancient philosophers would sometimes appropriate philosophy and, you know, you teach it to usually young men, funnily enough. By the way, here's an aside. Uh, this is a bit of a deep dive. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say something that's kind of trivia in a way, but I think it's interesting. For people that are into classics, it baffles me. The sophists clearly never went away. Like, if the sophists were alive today, a hundred percent guaranteed they would have a million followers each <laughs> on Instagram. Yes. And they'd have a YouTube channel. Uh Protagoras, gorgeous. Like they'd have YouTube channels. I absolutely a hundred percent guarantee. Like the sophists were guys who traveled the world giving speeches, and they were celebrities, they were the rock stars of their day. And they, what they did was teach rhetoric. They taught people how to win arguments. And they did a kind of self-improvement. They taught our word sophistication comes from the, the sophists. It's what they, they taught people, wealthy young men predominantly, to be sophisticated. Um, and they taught self-improvement. Um, they taught them, they claimed to teach them wisdom. They taught them about politics. And they, but Socrates said, but these guys are going to tell you whatever you want to hear. They're crowd pleasers, all right? They're essentially like demagogues, you know? They're sellouts. Like, they literally compete with each other to get the biggest round of applause because that's how they make the most money. So, you know, because they are so hooked on making as much money and getting as much fame as they can, they'll tell the audience what, just whatever they think resonates with them. They don't really care. By whether it's actually true or not. And then that actually becomes part of their ideology. It becomes a very cynical um, philosophy about, you know, the art of manipulation and the art of persuasion become very important to them. So the key sophistry becomes completely about rhetoric. It becomes completely about, you too can learn how to influence people. 
Like, because influencing people is really important. Well, what if you're an idiot, though? <laughs> like, and you're going around influencing people to do stupid things. Like, influencing people, as we said earlier, is a terrible idea if you happen to be an idiot. Like, you know, if you're, if you're a greedy, small-minded, self-indulgent individual, learning how to influence people and manipulate them verbally, that's a terrible idea. And that, that's what Socrates felt was going wrong with the sophists. And interestingly, the sophists got really bound up with political oratory. They associated with leading statesmen and politicians and political factions. Um, you know, what they did got tied up with political extremes. And, you know, it's not any different today. Like, there's a whole self-improvement industry today that somehow weirdly gets political. Like, I mean, well, I'll just pick on some individual people. Like, then, you know, like, a really obvious example would be probably the best seller, or one of the best-selling self-improvement authors of our time is Jordan Peterson, who just churns out videos about climate change and immigration and, you know, stuff that he doesn't know anything about. Like, but it's weird how the self-improvement ideology gets completely meshed with political rhetoric. Like, and it becomes about the culture wars in our era. Like, but in ancient Greece and Rome, they had the same thing. One of the things we learn from history is that when politics and self-improvement get muddled together like that, it, there's often something bad going down. It's often quite a toxic combination, really. You know, because what becomes important is persuading people to agree with your views. And your views will become more extreme because that's what gets people's attention. You know, no one's interested in an orator who stands up and says, there's good things and bad things about immigrants. Like, the good immigrants and bad immigrants. You know, people go, change the channel. This is boring. Like, what they want is some firebrand who's going to stand up and tell them, all immigrants are bad. Like, every immigrant's a terrorist, you know, or a rapist. Like, and you're like, whoa, 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 you don't really mean that. I mean, that's like a bit of a sweeping generalization. Yeah, but it sounds good. Like, you know, gets attention. Everyone's got everybody talking, right? But the fuel that drives celebrity is controversy and extremism. And the weird thing is it's inherently idiotic because we know... Everyone knows that what's being said are sweeping generalizations. We're using verbal hyperbole. So we know everyone of us is capable of realizing that that's a generalization. It's not like literally true. It's not a nuanced, balanced, realistic, objective way of talking or thinking about things. But we don't care by that point. But I don't care. Bring on the generalizations. We like them. The stereotypes, you know, the sweep it like it, it's that's what gets us excited. It's fear and anger. Like we love it. It's a drug to us. Yeah, confirmation bias is a hell of a drug, right? Yeah. And it, that was what the sophists were all about. And you know, we have the the same thing today. And philosophy evolved as a countermeasure to that. The whole point of Socrates and the Stoics was that they thought, this is crazy. Uh, it's temporary madness to get inflamed with anger about these things. It's not logical or rational to talk this way. You know, these people even, re everyone realises 
this is kind of like this showmanship and posturing is kind of a deliberate form of stupidity but we somehow need to snap out of it it's a trance like sophistry is a kind of hypnosis like the sophist giving his speech or the youtube influencer shouting like down his video at you about how you know like women are all this or you know liberals are all this or republicans are all that like you know like they're they're playing you like you know to make money out of you they you know it's it's simply they're as much of a huckster as the guys that went around with wagons literally selling snake oil in the old west and it's the oldest scam in the world and you know but everyone knows in a way it's a scam and yet we're addicted to it but the stoics think we we need to snap out of this hypnosis like this uh this trance like we need to regain our ability we're much smarter than this like you know we're more capable like of realizing that the these things are are not logical these aren't our true values you know they're pseudo values that are foisted on us by rhetoric, by politicians, you know, by the media, by social media. And Twitter, for instance, is almost designed to cause outrage by the, the very nature of it. One of the simplest tools our political orator can use is selective thinking, right? There are many, many tools that are, we've known about for, like, I mean, rhetoric was a very advanced art. In the ancient world, they didn't have microchips, but they knew a lot, more than most educated people do today, about how to how rhetoric works. They had a very formal, systematic understanding of it and, and of logic as well, uh, the kind of countermeasure to it. But the simplest thing, I think, you know, many, many things. I mean, one is just to make people angry. Because we, when people get angry or when they're frightened, their brain goes into a different mode of functioning. And they, all these cognitive biases become activated. Absolutely. I mean, my, my favorite example is that angry, like, well, this is, you know, you've got a military background. Like, one of my favorite conversations to have with dudes in the military is about anger. Because there's always been this debate that anger, many people believe that anger can be healthy. As long as you channel it in the right direction. You can use anger. It can be a motivating thing. Aristotle's followers believed this, and the Stoics, like Seneca, explicitly disagreed with them. They said, no, the mistake you're making is that you think of anger on a kind of hydraulic model. You think of it as just a nervous energy or something like that, um, that you can sort of direct like a fire hose or something. But anger is a cognitive state. Uh, It's composed of a bunch of attitudes and beliefs and values. And they were right. Because we know now that when people get angry, many cognitive biases become activated. For instance, angry people tend to underestimate risk, whereas anxious people tend to... Everyone knows that anxious people overestimate risk. If you've got a kind of neurotically anxious friend, you know that they're going to worry about stuff that's not really dangerous. You go, you always think the worst. Yeah, You're always worrying about, like, they overestimate threat Mm -hmm. or risk right angry people do the opposite because they're kind of in some ways angry people are attempting to overcompensate for their anxiety yes so they kind of put themselves in a mode of function that's the opposite and they underestimate risk now that's fine 
But the problem with underestimating risk is that when you put yourself in a high stakes situation, you lose, you know, you might get killed or injured, which is fine. You know, maybe you're an idiot and you know that's on you. Like it's Darwinism or whatever. It's natural selection. Like, so if you're really angry and you massively underestimate risk and you decide you're going to charge straight at the enemy and you get shot in the head, that's, you know, like maybe that's on you. Like, problem is that people who underestimate risk also expose everyone around them to danger. Like, so in a team, for instance, like, you know, or in, for your family, like, do you want to be underestimating risk and continually biasing yourself in favour of exposing your wife and kids, you know, or your comrades in uh, the armed forces to danger? So that angry people, that's why it's called temporary madness, because they don't think straight. They become anger impairs our ability to engage in, in problem solving. If you want people to arrive at stupid conclusions, like you're, say you're a politician and that's your job, right? Then make them angry because they're now in a mode of functioning where they're going to massively, you know, you go, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea to go and invade Sicily, for instance? Like, and people maybe are like, seems a bit risky. Like, this is what the, the, the this is how the Athenians lost the Peloponnesian War, right? Yeah. Like, Let's go and visit Sicily. All right, bit of slight bit of geography. Sicily's really big, and it's pretty far away from Athens. So it was like the furthest theatre that the Athenians had ever fought a war in. And I don't think they understood how big the island was. They just thought it's an island. How big can it be? Like, like it's pretty big. It's got a lot of cities on it, right? Um, so they sent. Two thirds of their navy, I think, like, and you know, a lot of soldiers on those boats, and they all got killed. Like, they died horribly. It was a complete military disaster. But if you're an orator and you're like, how can we persuade all these idiots to throw money into this? Like, I mean, they're going to have to build a lot of ships and crew them and stuff like that. Let's make them angry. Right? Suddenly, it doesn't seem that dangerous. You know, like, those Syracusans, they, they're best buddies with the Spartans. You know, if we don't do something about them, they're going to come for us. You know, they're probably going to kill all your wives and kids. These foreigners, they don't have the same values as us. So they'd whip them up in anger. Suddenly it doesn't seem that dangerous. It seems like a good idea. Maybe we should go and teach those guys a lesson. So they all went and they all got killed. All right? And they lost the war as a result because they were stupid. Because the politicians thought, how can we talk them into doing something that's a bad idea? Make them angry. Right? My other famous example about that, my favourite famous example, is Muhammad Ali and the rumble in the jungle. Foreman. When he's fighting George Foreman, he's like, how can I beat Foreman? He's huge. He's a monster. Ali, you know what Ali was like? He was like, he's a monster. This guy, this guy's a, like, he's a beast. You know, he's a big man. Like, you know, how can I possibly beat him? And Ali made him angry. Like, he taunted him. Um, and Foreman tired himself out. Like, because he underestimated the risk of throwing too many punches too early in the fight and exhausting himself, which is a really stupid thing to do. It's not complicated, you know. He he, he kind of knew that was a bad idea. But Ali got under his skin, like, by provoking his anger. Now, that's yeah. a really interesting example of where someone in a conflict, like, actually exploits this 
to to undermine their opponent. And I guess the same thing can happen in military terms as well. But uh, it's one of the oldest tricks in the book. And yet, modern-day self-improvement influencers, like, I mean, the clue is when they're yelling down the camera at you about how they hate this and that and these people are all out to get you. And Isn't it weird that self-improvement now consists of a lot of that? You know, don't you take a step back for a minute and think this dude seems really angry? Like, why is he so angry? Like, you know, it doesn't seem to be working out so well for him. Like, it doesn't resemble Marcus Aurelius. Like, you know, it doesn't resemble Epictetus. They seem like pretty chilled dudes. Like, why is this guy so angry all the time about everything? He wants me to be angry as well. He's modeling it. Like, he wants me to be like him. Like, to be angry about cultural Marxists or about Trump voters or about women. Like, I'm really angry about women, uh, but feminists in particular, really angry about feminists, like immigrants, you name it. I'll tell you, but the strange thing is, Marcus, no, never, like, it's unbiased in this regard. No one is ever angry with Scottish people. <laughs> Everybody loves the Scots. They Everyone do. loves Scottish people. And I feel yeah. like we don't deserve it. <laughs> like, I mean, I hate to say it, but even Scott, most Scottish people are like, what have we ever done to deserve that? Like, we give the world whiskey and golf, but uh, uh, yeah, Scottish people get off really lightly. You know, uh, it's an odd position to be in. But I think the fundamental thing is everyone's into self-improvement, right? Who isn't? Everyone's into self-improvement these days, or most people are. And yet, maybe some of the self-improvement that we're getting, you know, is the opposite of what it should be. And maybe in the ancient, in ancient Athens, it was the same. Uh, there were sophists. People were like, well, these philosophers are cool, but the sophists are kind of interesting as well. And they're saying similar things. And even the sophists even quote Socrates a lot of the time. And they'll quote other philosophers. So, like, what's the difference? And Socrates, Socrates says, I think it's in the Euthydemus, actually, and I believe Epictetus maybe says something similar. But Socrates at one point says, I always remember this. He said, uh, you guys sound like philosophers. But what you're doing, if I look closely, is the complete opposite of philosophy. So you're quoting things that philosophers say, but you're doing it in order to persuade people like to adopt your opinions rather than encouraging them to think for themselves. And you're doing it to encourage them to pursue success and status rather than encouraging them to pursue wisdom and virtue. Like, you're, here's another clue. And now I'm going to get into more controversial territory, right? Here we go. Here we go. How can you spot a sophist, right? Well, there are many things, right? But I'd give people a very simple criterion or metric. Epictetus said a foolish person blames other people for their problems. Um, someone that's partway educated blames themselves. Um, and someone that's wise blames nobody. Right. So certainly the first thing that Stoicism teaches us is it's not things that upset us or people but our opinions about them. So we should take responsibility for our opinions. We should 
not blame ourselves, but take ownership. Um, rather than, and if we're blaming other people, if we're going, no, it's the thing that upsets me. It's that guy that maybe now we're now we're blamed. We're doing the opposite, right? We're blaming other people. Well, some of these dudes specialize in blaming other people. Like, I mean, that's all they go on about, and that's partly because they're beholden to politicians, often being funded by political parties or lobby groups, whatever. Like, quite explicitly so, being paid millions of dollars by political media outlets and stuff like that. So surprise, surprise, you know, they've got a kind of political agenda, even though they're supposedly doing self-improvement. And it's all about blaming certain groups of people, certain blaming women, feminists, blaming, you know, whatever, Republicans. When I was a kid growing up, everything that people say about Muslims today that's prejudiced to me Sounds just like the way people spoke about Catholics when I was a kid growing up in the West Coast of Scotland. It, I have a weird deja vu experience, you know, where people blame certain religious groups. It's still the same arguments, the same rhetoric, but they get bored and they move on to another group after a while. Like, it's not the Irish anymore, you know, it's, you know, Mexicans or something or. You know, it's uh, it was the Polish for a while, and then it stopped being the Polish. Like it kind of, there's a weird arbitrariness, you know, about it throughout history. Who we who we decide, you know, we're going to complain about, but blaming other people and encouraging your viewers, your audience to blame other people is the polar opposite of taking responsibility. And the irony is, if you want to cover that up. A good way to do it is to claim that what your self-improvement is all about is teaching personal responsibility. So tidy your room, make your bed, but blame women, cultural Marxists and liberals for all your problems. Like That's a victim mentality. If a woman rejects you on a date and you're, you, know, you get your panties in a twist about that and it, it, it ruins your day, that's a you problem, you know? It, it's not feminism's fault. Like, it's not the woman's fault. You're upset about it because of the way that you think about it. And it seems odd to me that people wouldn't realize. I mean, Socrates said, look, the first thing that you should ask yourself, and this is the same question we ask in cognitive therapy today. You know, I think, again, this is something that's there very explicitly in the Socratic Dialogues, and people seem to not notice it because they, they see what they want to see. Socrates says you should ask yourself if other people feel the same way that you do. And if they don't, that's a clue that it's not the thing that upsets you, but your opinions about it. In Book One of the Republic, this argument's made very explicit. Socrates is talking to an elderly friend of his who's a foreign immigrant at Athens called uh, Cephalus or Cephalus. And Socrates says, I think life is a journey. And therefore, when I meet someone who's advanced in years like yourself, I think I should ask them what lies ahead of me like, so that I can prepare myself like, and they can share their experience of being further ahead on the, the path of life. And so he says, what's it like being old? And Cephalus says, well, I hang around with a lot of other old guys and they complain a lot. Um, they're always complaining about how they've lost their sex drive and they're not able to get into town anymore. 
because um, they're not in the same physical condition that they used to be. They don't enjoy their food anymore. And he said, but I think old age has many advantages. It's a relief to me that I'm not obsessed with sex anymore. I feel like I've been unshackled from a madman, he said, now that my libido's gone. He said, I have much more time just to hang out, uh, chill at home and, and read books and enjoy, engage in conversations. I'm enjoying my retirement, is kind of what he, he says. And he says, that makes me think that it's not old age itself that's a burden, but really what matters is your attitude towards it. Because I, it doesn't bother me and I see good things in it, whereas they only see bad, right? It's not things that upset us. It's not old age that upsets us, but rather our, our attitude, our opinion towards it. That's how the Republic opens. It's the most famous book in the history of philosophy. So again, no one notices it. They're like, you know, no one ever mentions that. How come everyone that studies philosophy isn't familiar with the fact that the most famous book in the entire history of philosophy begins with this argument that Epictetus and the Stoics then pick up and, and run with? But that would be taking responsibility in a real sense. Taking responsibility, tidying your room, making your bed is meaningless unless you take responsibility for your mind and your beliefs, your values and your attitudes, because those are the things that shape your desires and emotions. And it's your desires and emotions that shape the quality of your life and, and make you like potentially a great man or woman, a wise individual or conversely, can make you a tedious jerk, a canker on society. Like, but it's our character, right? Um, and the, so the, that's one of the fundamental things that Stoics want to, to teach us. Character is destiny. You know, you need to look within yourself. So the same challenge, the epistrophe, in a way, the turning around is you've got to look, turn the the spotlight on yourself, right? Politics by its very nature and the news, it's all about other people. It's all about things in the world stage. The very nature of the beast is about putting you in this trance where all you, you know, all you care about is what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in Washington, D.C. or what some famous dude said, right? And I, I think the Socrateses of history are much more concerned with what's going on inside you, right? What really matters uh, is what's going on in terms of your character, beliefs, and values, and not uh, what's happening in the world around you. It's like the more we are tricked into being angry or frightened or envious of celebrities or things that are happening on the world stage. These things are important, but they risk putting us in a trance, putting us to sleep so that we become mindless and forgetful of our own character and attitudes. Absolutely. And we made a great point about this before we hit record, this idea of people just taking some of these quotes and then these platitudes or using one truth and using that as a debate tactic yeah. with uh, AI and even chat. GBT, yeah, kind of give us a, a brief synopsis of what we were discussing because this is something that is coming and it's hitting us now. And if we're not aware of it, we'll be blindsided and ambushed by it all the time intellectually. I was using Chat GPT, upgraded to the latest version of it, 
about 90% of the questions I ask about history, it got wrong. Um, but it says things that are very plausible. It's a sophist, right? It tells you mm-hmm. what exactly. it thinks it can get away with. It's a cyber sophist, right? It's very persuasive. It's all about persuasion, right? It has no idea what's true, right? But it knows what you know you're going to agree with. Um, it's more interested in having a conversation that's going to keep you happy. Like it's that is very submissive. Like it doesn't push back against. It's quite easy actually to try to persuade it of things that aren't true. Um, maybe that's just the current nature of it. I don't know, but it's not. A, it resembles a human, but it's not a human. It's like the uncanny valley or something. You have this weird feeling of it's like I'm talking to a person here, but like a really weird person. Like um, it's very convincing. It's a person who has absolute confidence. It doesn't hesitate. Who speaks with total authority, but then often, very often, says things that turn out to be wrong. Um, it has very little appreciation of historical or philosophical nuance, for instance, and people are using it for marketing um, and to exploit for persuasion. Like so, it's a an arms race in the war for our psychological health. Um, why are we all messed up? Because we mess each other up. Like, you know, our society is all about manipulation. Um, and it always has been. And this is a new weapon in the race to try and manipulate people. We could use it maybe to protect ourselves, you know, but it's also already going to be used by people who want to deceive you. The level of deception is off the scale, like with deep fake and, you know, getting it to figure out what can we, how could you persuade people? You know, of this or that. Oh, well, if you tell them this or if you show them that. Again, selective information is, is one of the most powerful, simplest strategies. The media is all about that. If you are following a court case or some political controversy and you watch CNN, God forbid, but you watch CNN <laughs> uh, or Fox mm-hmm. or you know, what what you'll notice is that they leave a lot of information out on either side. So you'll get one version from CNN, you get another version from Fox, and you don't get the whole story from either of them, you know, because they're just really selective with the information that they tell you. So, but I think increasingly that's uh, being used to exploit us on social media. Yeah, it's, and, it's, it's lying by omission at scale, and it's Yeah, undeniable. huge scale of lie, lies by omission. It's not. We need the whole truth or the context in order to get a, a balanced view. It's easy to lie by omission, like, and we were bombarded with that. Like, we allow social media to bombard us with this selective thinking nonsense, um, and it, you know, at least builds up our tendency towards confirmation bias. No wonder people become paranoid, like bigoted, and adopt go to extreme views you know most political questions are kind of nuanced i'll give you an example right in britain we have the national health service so we have like a state it's one of the largest employers in the world pretty much everybody in britain knows somebody that works for the nhs and it's actually you know quite consistently despite what people may say about it on independent metrics it's it's evaluated to be one of the most cost effective health services in the whole world right I, having worked briefly in the NHS, 
I think there are many problems with it, but I also think it has one of the highest levels of, of clinical standards in, in the world in terms of evidence-based practice, which I'm a, a big advocate of. But there's things that are wrong with the NHS. It would be really easy to do an entire documentary about all the things that are wrong with the NHS. Uh, it'd be really easy to do an entire documentary about all the things that are good about the NHS. Right? You could put one on Fox and one on CNN. Like, you know, and we get trapped in a, a bubble. But the reality is, I think if you're serious about it, you go, it has strengths and weaknesses. There's good things and bad things about it. And for instance, you know, I think it works very well in Britain. Would a state-funded national health service work in America? I don't know. Like, it's a different country. You know, it might be that it would potentially work. Maybe there's reasons why it wouldn't work out well. Like, you know, in, in private healthcare, like, it would works out better in that economy. I'm not an economist, you know, but I can have opinions about it. But I think what happened in the past was that people would have opinions that they held more tentatively. And they think, I can kind of see it both ways. And like, I mean, it seems to me like this is a good idea, but maybe it wouldn't work in that country. And to me, that's like normal. You know, that's what a normal person's opinion would be. But now we're encouraged to have an extreme opinion, like one way or another. And yet, if anything, I think people know less now than they did in previous decades about how the things that they're talking about work. Um, everyone's got an opinion about climate change. During the pandemic, everyone suddenly became an expert in epidemiology. Like, and it was crazy. Joe Rogan became rich by waving around research studies that he had absolutely no clue what they meant. Like, like uh, this was always a problem in the media and health reporting. Anyone that works in, in medicine will tell you that causal fallacies or the fallacy of confusing causation and correlation yeah. is what newspapers trade on. Like, so they go, what we found is there's a study that shows people with headaches, 90% of them take painkillers. So therefore, like, it, it may be the painkillers cause headaches. Like, you'd be like, well, that's crazy talk. Like, it's the other way around, right? But that's the fallacy of confusing causation and correlation, right? Um, unfortunately, correlational studies are easy to do, and there are lots of them. Newspapers love them because they go, cancer is linked with going to hospital. <laughs> or something, you know, well, like, okay, it doesn't mean that going to hospital causes cancer, right? Playing golf is associated with having heart attack. Maybe that's because a lot of old people play golf. Like, it doesn't mean that cough causes heart attacks, right? It's, it's idiotic, right? And no one that works in healthcare takes it seriously. But what happened, I think, during the pandemic was, I'll pick on Joe Rogan because he's got the biggest audience. Like, week after week, like, he would commit the fallacy of confusing causation and correlation. And, you know, commit the, you know, it's like the Dunning-Kruger. Um, you know, because people aren't trained in research methods, they you know, they don't necessarily appreciate how stupid he is. Like, you know, and, and how how clearly wrong a lot of the things he's saying. Well that's why there was an entire petition like of medical professionals that complained about his show. And then so people thought, oh it's just because they don't like his politics. No, it, it was because it would be like you're a car mechanic and you're watching somebody ranting to the largest audience in the world every year 
every day about how an engine works, and they, they clearly don't know you know anything about it. And they're just talking complete gobbledygook and spreading misinformation through a fire hose. Like so, but that's what we have to to deal with. The the philosophers in the ancient world wanted us to. The only solution to this is to take more responsibility for our own thinking. And, you know, it begins with a kind of Socratic humility, like realizing that we're fallible, that we make most of our opinions are based, most of what we call knowledge. Like there's a kind of a, an interesting, you know, example, very simply, is that we, we talk about the stuff that we know. But generally speaking, we have very little knowledge and usually what we're talking about are opinions. And opinions are just stuff we believe because we feel like it mm-hmm. or because someone told us. You know, we don't actually know it to be true. There's a fundamental difference between knowledge is justified, opinion is arbitrary. Like, it's the, you know, it's superficial. Uh, everyone's got opinions, you know. But uh, it doesn't mean anything. So realizing the difference between knowledge and opinion, uh, I mean, all we get from politicians is a bit, most politicians don't know anything about anything. Like, especially nowadays, there's, they're mostly career politicians, or they've got, like, I mean, the clue is how many of them have got law degrees, you know? I mean, what do the lawyers know about climate change? And what's his name? Robert F. Kennedy Jr., has no idea about, has absolutely no no concept of how research studies are conducted, doesn't know how to read research studies, and yet he's one of the most vocal spokesmen about, you know, pseudoscience, like climate change, vaccine. Anybody that has trained in research methods would know immediately. This guy like, has absolutely no concept of what he's saying. He can't read the studies that he's talking about. Because he doesn't understand what the statistics mean. It doesn't stop him just making up stuff, right? I watched that guy say, he was talking about something that's relatively less controversial. He was talking about the, although still controversial, he was talking about the harmful effects of uh, radiation from, uh, from mobile phones. And he said there were tens of thousands. He said there were literally tens of thousands of research studies Showing the terrible physical harm was that uh, where was that? Was on maybe it was on Joe Rogan or one of these kind of shows. And I thought anybody that's ever done any kind of research would just kind of know immediately that there are not going to be tens of thousands of research studies that show that. Right? That would be like me saying, right? That that would be as absurd as me saying there are tens of thousands of coffee shops on my street. Right, any normal sane human being would think, well, that seems unlikely, Donald. I know coffee might be popular in Montreal, but it seems like an extravagant claim. You know, usually there might be two or three, maybe there could be a dozen, not like, but there's not going to be tens of thousands of coffee shops on your street. So I think anybody listening to that would think that that can't be true. And yet he says it's literally true right? because he has no idea. Like, you know, it's crazy talk, but. Lawyers are trained to win arguments, to win debates. You know, the sophists were invented debating and winning arguments. Winning an argument is not the same as being right. Any idiot can win an argument. 
Like, you know, you just present facts selectively, you know, you just appeal to prejudices. You just, you know, the, the skills that are employed in winning debates are not the skills that are used in the scientific method. We don't, you know, I, it seems strange to say this, but we don't settle scientific questions by having debates. Like, you don't get a bunch of scientists to say, okay, thrash it out. We've got five minutes, like, you know, and at the end of it, we'll decide, you know, how physics works. Or whatever. That's, that's not, we do calculations. We present and we present evidence, right? It's crazy that in the internet age, people have been so corrupted by lawyers and politicians and people who employ rhetoric professionally that yeah. they actually believe the debate is how we settle scientific truth and not that debate is a kind of parlor game like that's basically just about you know winning arguments by using deception and persuasion and stuff like that you know it, the ancient Athenians this is the whole point of Socrates and the Stoics was that they were alert to this problem I mean, it's easier to look at their culture. It gives us a little bit of detachment. Right. Right? It's a bit close to home if we start talking about uh, things that are going on around us. Because people might think, I quite like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate and like Robert F. Kennedy and you know all these guys. I, I like it when they shout down the camera at me. I like it when they, they tell me I should be upset about things that I hadn't even thought about being upset about until now. Like, I like the sweeping generalizations that they speak in and like the unfounded assumptions that they make. And, you know, like when they talk about things that they've got no credentials or qualifications and like, like give, I feel, I feel a, a free sign of excitement. Like listening to it, it's entertaining. Like, you need, experts are boring. And that's what it is. It's, it's entertainment for these people. Yeah. Like, we don't want to, like, I mean, honestly, scientists are boring. Like, you know, like it's, it takes a lot of patience. Anyone that's ever been to university knows oh, yeah. that scientific textbooks, like you've got, it takes a lot of patience. It's much more, it's much more entertaining listening to somebody who has no sweet idea what they're talking about going on about something. Like, and that, that's, that's, you know, that's what we, we pay <laughs> for. But in ancient Athens, it was the same. And, you know, the sophists traded on this and Socrates thought, we're all going to die, like, because these guys are going to get us killed, like, and in the process, they are corrupting our souls, yes, like, by pandering to public opinion in the worst possible way by just presenting information selectively, appealing to prejudices, trying to frighten or provoke people into agreeing with them, you know, all the kind of stock and trade tricks that they studied formally how to use and he said you know Socrates said this is dangerous like we need to we need to be extreme and he was executed for his trouble like in the end by of court a jury of 500 people who were persuaded by gossip and rhetoric and you know all this kind of the same old stuff but that that's how philosophy originated in mm -hmm. a sense Socratic philosophy certainly originated as a, a remedy um, to protect us against lawyers and politicians and re professional rhetoricians who wanted to manipulate us into invading Sicily like or whatever, or other catastrophically bad, bad ideas. It's happened throughout history. Like, 
But uh, I think if you don't get that from the Stoicism, then it reminds me of a quote from William Blake. William Blake said, we both read the Bible day and night, but you read black where I read white. Right, so it, it amazes me that people can read the Stoics and think it's so all. Andrew Tate has a video about how he loves Marcus Aurelius and thinks that he's influenced by him, and he talks about Bugattis in the video, right? Which is not something that Epictetus would ever have said. <coughs> like, no, and what he says in it, it fascinates me just from a kind of like sort of slightly dispassionate kind of um, psychological point of view. It, it, People say, why do you even bother talking about these guys? Because I think it's interesting. It's like the Stoics, like in Socrates, Socrates loved the sophists. He was always hanging around, bothering them. Like, because he thought it's like studying psychopathology, right? I need to know what these guys are doing, like, in order to understand how to respond to it. Like, we have to study, like, what it is that we, you know, we think is is a corrupt, a corrosive influence or you know, we need to understand. We philosophers need to understand study rhetoric. They like, need to understand fallacies in in order to know how to do logic. They're like two sides of the the same coin. The Stoics loved the Greek tragedies. They thought we should be studying them because they're case studies in psychopathology. Like you know, Medea was the Chrysippus's favorite place. It's about a woman that goes crazy and murders her own children. Like, and people say, why are you studying this horror story about a crazy women? Like, and Chrysippus is like, because that's what we're all Medea. Like, we're all as crazy as she is, in a sense. Like, you know, we need to study her in order to figure out how does she talk herself into doing like this extreme, her thinking gradually gets more and more kind of extreme until she talks herself doing something that's completely insane, which is what America is doing right now. Like basically, well, you know, many countries around the world is like a watching a slow motion train wreck of people gradually talking themselves into more and more kind of extreme positions until is it eventually you, they make a really bad decision, like, and then they you know have to deal with the consequences of it. Maybe that snaps them out of the trance. Exactly, and that's what philosophy is there for, right? Philosophy I've... is there to kind of jolt us, jolt us out of it. So I think taking a step back and, and looking, history can be philosophical in the sense it can give us that kind of cognitive distance and the ability to look at what, what happened in another era. And then maybe we can, it's easier for us to see the parallels. Travel can sometimes do that for us. Absolutely. Donald, I could talk to you for hours, my friend. I've loved our conversation. I'm sure we're going to have many more conversations in the future as well. Tell our listeners and our viewers where we can get your newest book. It's, it's out now, so they can order it. They can get this book about Marcus Aurelius. It's amazing. Of all the people that write about Marcus Aurelius, Donald is the one that I recommend to everyone, frankly. And I think he's learned and forgotten more about Marcus Aurelius than I've ever learned in my life. This is the book. Yes. Verissimus was also tremendous. For those of you that haven't picked that up yet, incredible book incredible graphics almost it well it is a graphic novel novel about marcus's life i highly recommend it they can get it from any good bookstore and i think i wrote this book because i enjoy stories and i think we can learn a lot from history and probably also because my daughter i'll give you an example there are many things that led me to to be interested in this but one was during the pandemic. I had to homeschool her for a little while. I was trying to kind of do it the way that the school had told me to. 
And then I thought, I don't know, I think often the best decision is just to kind of wrap that up and start again from scratch and think, what would I do if I was just going to decide how to homeschool her? Like, you know, if I could take a radical decision. And I thought, I'd basically just teach her history, like, because it consists of stories, but I'd make it really interesting. And then as we're doing history, I'd touch on other subjects as well. So she'd teach a lot, I learn about, uh, I teach her a lot about, about language and geography and philosophy, but I'd tie it in to stories about Vikings and cowboys and, you know, the Roman Empire. And, you know, we had, so we had a day where we just did Cleopatra. We had a day about Alexander the Great, you know, um, we had uh, a, a day about Scottish history all different kind of eras that we we picked out and it, so it felt to me that really learning to to appreciate these stories can help people to access the philosophy and it becomes more memorable for them and now it works i think with children but it works with adults as well there are many people that only became interested in stoicism because they saw gladiator like yes. i have friends that had never opened a self-help book or a history book and they saw Gladiator and they went off and read the meditations. And, you know, so I think biography reaches a different audience. Absolutely. And you, your writing is so engaging. I, I highly recommend it to everybody. Donald, thank you so much. I look forward to thank talking you. to you again in the future. And um, again, congratulations on the the new boy. And uh, thank you. It, being in a stoic household like that, I think he's going to grow up to be an incredible philosopher. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'll let you know how it goes. It's been a pleasure speaking to you again. Always a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.